incognito mode today. We've, uh, Ryan, I was not at the men's meeting, but it was not because of your poor sales pitch. <laughs> Wasn't feeling great, so sorry if I'm keeping some distance from you today, but I'm trying to... There you go, Bob. I'll just back up a little bit there. I think you're safe. Well, let's pray before we start into unit three in our lesson. Father, I am grateful for the words that Brian just read, not because they're stirring words, but because they are truth. There is no one that's the standard but you. And so there's nobody we should compare to you. And yet you in the heavens extend mercy to us, and you've done it in ways no one would have predicted. Even the prophets who got to understand what you were doing somewhat couldn't see the breadth and the glory of your plan. So, Father, my first prayer request is that you would open our eyes to seeing your glory and your character a little bit better, to take 40, 50 minutes, and to try to summarize who you are and what you've done is laughable. But we still pray that you would help us because we want to know you better. And maybe more than anything, we want to want to know you better. And so I pray that you'd increase our desire for you and our eagerness to know you, not simply through this little time, but through the rest of the time that we have with you this next week. Lord, may it be marked by desire. Lord, where we're satisfying ourselves in other things, where we're finding delight and comfort, where we've taken refuge in bitterness and self-pity. Lord, we realize that's not simply because of sin. It's also because of desire. We want justice. We want closeness. We want intimacy. Lord, we want things to be right. We want to be impressed and awed. We want to find solace and comfort. And we want all those things in you, but sometimes we are too terrified to come. And so, Lord, my second request is that you would increase our confidence, not just our desire for you, but our confidence to come to you. And Lord, I pray for that across our congregation. There are great needs in our church right now. We're grateful for the way that you've sustained Gus. And again, we come and we ask, Lord, would you continue to help him? We pray for strength for Phyllis, Lord. We pray that they as a couple would enjoy you and delight in you. Father, we pray for wisdom for those that are undergoing difficulty right now, trying to understand how to navigate the chaotic waters of things like healthcare, but so many other things. Lord, there are tensions that divide our country. There are tensions that are dividing our church. There are tensions that are dividing families. And Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And so I pray for peace, lastly, in our church, Lord. I pray for peace in our families of our church. I pray for peace in each of the souls that are settled into this church. And Lord, that, that expression of desire for you and confidence to come to you in peace because we've found you. Lord, there's no better news. And I pray then lastly for boldness that no matter where you've placed us, we'd be eager to share who you are and what you've done with us. And Lord, I pray that we would be bold to proclaim the good news to those who so desperately need it. 
I pray, Lord, for the households and the families immediately around us. Father, I pray that our testimony in this neighborhood would be compelling, that the way that we interact with them would proclaim that you are a just, a fair, a good, and an attractive God whose glory dominates. And so, Lord, may they see us as a church that loves one another, that sacrifices for your kingdom, and that cares about them. Lord, as we reach out into our schools and into our workplaces, we pray, Father, that you would extend our reach, not so that our brand goes forward, but so that your fame, your glory, your honor is known in places that are still dark and untouched. It is unfathomable to think that there are people in our community who don't know who you are given the opportunity that your church has had to be able to reach out. And so, Lord, I pray, don't let the stones cry out under our feet. Lord, let us proclaim that the Messiah has come and we're gladly celebrating him. We long for his arrival. Father, I pray, through this this meager lesson of profound truth, Lord, I pray that you'd change and alter our church no matter how we've come in this morning. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we had um, from Brian a responsive reading that, as he said, came from the Valley of Vision, a Puritan prayer book. And we have been glad over the years to kind of learn a little bit more from it. What I was grateful for in that responsive reading is the way that it's going to set us up for some things we think about God's character. If you looked ahead in the lesson... Um, you see that we're going to talk about the triune God. You don't have to look too far. That's the title of our lesson, clearly. But in looking through that, you might see that we're going to spend some time talking about the Father and some time spent talking about the Son. But where I'm going to try and move us quickly, the reason I'm going to try to move us quickly through those first two points is because I want us to focus on the question of who God is as spirit. And the question I want to ask is primarily one that's meant to be personal. We can ask corporate questions later. But as we're going through this material, the question I want to ask, let you ask yourself and let the Holy Spirit prompt in you a little bit more is, what has my experience of God been like lately? Not what truths do I know, what truths do I not know, but what difference has that made in you? Emotionally, how does that carry you through rough times? What delights you? What brings you some sense of kind of peace and comfort? Because I think the knowledge of God, knowing who God is and enjoying him, is not simply meant to be something we pass on a test. We're not simply to be a church that gets doctrine right but has wandered from our first love. So the question I want us to think about as we think about Father, Son, and Spirit is to ask this question of how are we experiencing God? What is our relationship with God? with him been like? Not what's it founded on. We, we celebrate those realities, but what's it been like lately for you? So with that, let's look at the passage that Brian read last. This is Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. It begins and says, Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, seated, sealed with seven seals. Now, if you remember our time from Revelation and... <laughs> If you don't, I get it. We were going through Revelation in a whole variety of 
of ways because our church was meeting in a bunch of different spots when we were talking about Revelation. I think we talked about a Revelation a little bit here. We talked about it at Ascension. Talked about it in the barn. Can't remember if we talked about it in the plaza or not. We probably talked about them online. It was a, it was a varied approach to going through Revelation. But if you remember, the scrolls and the seals breaking on the scrolls were really significant moments starting in chapter 6. But that scrolls introduced here in chapter 5. Revelation begins with John meeting Jesus, having him described in terms that look human but are so much more than human. Having then Jesus sort of begin to address these lampstands or what are set up as churches around him and giving a bit of an evaluation of all the churches that were on kind of a rideable circuit around John's home church of Ephesus. But after that, John is then brought into a scene in heaven. Chapter 4 and chapter 5 describe that scene, and chapter 5, verse 1, gives us this one moment. After all the glory that we've seen, because God is creator, because God is the one who's intervening in history, there's a plan to be able to wrap up all the injustice that's going on. Isn't it kind of encouraging? Wouldn't it be encouraging right now? And won't it be discouraging when our next political cycle wraps up? Because people will make a ton of promises about how they're going to fix all of our problems. And we get excited every time we think that there's a new solution for all of our divisions and troubles and turmoils. We get kind of caught up in all the promise And then there's a bit of a letdown when we see, oh, these politicians weren't as powerful as we thought they were. That's kind of what's happening here in Revelation chapter 5. There's a a plan. And God has this plan, this scroll. And it's it's sort of God's way of bringing an end to all the trouble of the earth. And it would be exciting for something like that to be opened. The problem there in verse 5 Uh, is that we don't actually have, sorry, in verse 3, is that we don't have anyone who can open it. Because in verse 2, an angel sees the scroll and says, this is a big deal. Who is worthy to give us this news, to open this scroll? Who is worthy to be the one to be able to sort of bring it to pass? And we can't find anybody. Verse 3, no one in heaven and on earth and under the earth was able to open the scroll. And John begins to weep. He weeps because he knows that what heaven has to offer is better than what the earth is enduring. He weeps because he knows that God's plan is better than man's. And he weeps because he feels the burden of injustice over his world. And we can relate to this, can't we? We want some answer to life's trouble. And it always feels like we're getting close, but here in verse four, the ultimate answer is right there and nobody can open it up. And so John is crying as he watches this this unfold in heaven. And verse five, one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and it's seven seals. And that's exciting because there are two sort of Figures that are presented and both have this godlike status. Revelation 4 kind of harkened back to what was going on. It's going to be unpacked a little bit more, but if you remember when we went through Revelation, uh, it had really close ties to the Old Testament book of Daniel. 
And there was a character in Daniel called the Ancient of Days. There was a character in Daniel who had this appearance of a human, and both of them seemed to be more than just any other character that's ever appeared in history. The one seated on the throne clearly seems to be the divine being, but there's one who approaches him later on who seems to be more than just sort of some angelic messenger, certainly more than a human, but he certainly looks very human. And here in five, we're getting this sense that what is happening from the throne is going to come from God, but there's going to be some triumphant root of David, lion of Judah, human being who's going to conquer, and he's going to open up the scroll and its seven seals. What we have kind of pictured here in Revelation chapter five are the first two persons of the Trinity. So let's take a look for a sec, and we're going to dive into our book. We're in lesson three. We're going to ask a question about what it means for us to really know this God who even in the, the definition of who he is, is really difficult to comprehend. In fact, in the email that will go out later today or tomorrow morning, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to include a quiz that we went through a long while ago. We'll talk about it a little bit more in a bit. Uh, but I want you to try and take the quiz. It comes from a guy named Tim Chalice. He asked some questions about the nature of Jesus, what it means for Jesus to be fully God and fully man. I remember when we went through that when we were doing our doctrine course a few years ago, and, and we had put that, that quiz out there, and everybody who tried to take it really wrestled through it. I think a community group went through, and they, they had some lively discussion about some of the answers, because trying to understand what it's meant for God to be like us, but not like us, knowable, but in a way that is always going to exceed our ability to sum him up, and to have a relationship with that kind of a God, and then to find out that that God came and entered into human history so that he was, he was God, and he was a human. All of a sudden, I just want to let you know, we have entered into the very deep waters of the ocean. It is going to be tough for us with our swimming skills to navigate everything that's, that's going to be presented here. But this is one of the lessons that I'd encourage you as well. As there's, different, um, as there's different scripture references here, I'd really encourage you to try and take a look at them, unpack them a little bit, and just, just enjoy, just get a bit of a teaser to what we're trying to think about. What's our experience of God? Go, go into these and just enjoy the presentation of who God is that comes across in all of these references. Listen to these three verses. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? That he might bring us to God. Second one. As for me, it is good to be near God. Once we had, or sorry, once we've received the principle of eternal life, this is a, word, uh, a quote from Herman Bavinck, once we have received the principle of eternal life into our hearts, we cannot but long always to know more of him who granted us this life. What is it that Peter's saying? What is it that David's saying? What is it that Hermann Bavink is saying, if I'm even saying his name the right way? Essentially this, knowing God is the essence of our salvation. It's Often that Christians come into a, a relationship with God, they come into the kingdom of God, 
very aware of one primary problem. I am a sinner. As a sinner, I am messing up other people's lives. As a sinner, I am messing up even my own pursuit of happiness and satisfaction. I'm a mess. I'm messing up my world. Other people have messed up my world. And this is getting tough. And so it's difficult for us to be able to move sometimes past that presentation, though. Because the good news that we talked about last week is certainly that we who are sinners can be made righteous before a holy God. But is that the end? If you take everything that we talked about in that hypothetical soldier from last week, the idolatrous rebel who was punished for his sins, brought back to life, given legal status of being justified before God, being reconciled to God and being adopted by God into his family. If he gets all of these new statuses and clearances in life, what was it all for? It was that he would enter into the king's home, sit at the king's table, be able to walk into the king's presence. It would be that that former sinner, now saint, enjoys the new status that he has. What is our chief end? It's not just to know God, is it? It's to enjoy him. And so we say at the very top, knowing God is the essence of our salvation. And In trying to understand who God is, we have a certain way that God has been presented to us in the pages of Scripture. But we've already, in some cases, adopted words that are beyond our understanding. Let's take a few things that we can understand about God that are kind of like us, and so we think we get an idea of them. They're what we call God's communicable attributes. That doesn't mean just that they can be talked about. It means that they kind of relate to us in some ways that we've been given our existence. So everybody kind of knows that we have bodies, but everybody knows we're a little bit more than our bodies, right? I mean, on one level, just take, and I'm sure Mike could talk about this a little bit better than I could, but... Think a little bit about cellular regeneration. It means this. The cells in my body aren't the exact same cells that they were whenever I was born. My cells live, they reproduce, they die. The same bones are still there, they grow. The same muscles are still there. The same everything is still there. But are they the exact same cells? Well, in short, they aren't. So what part of those cells that are constantly reproducing are me? It's kind of an interesting metaphysical question in some level, isn't it? What it gets to is that though we are material, there is also something more about us. We're spiritual beings, aren't we? There's a part of us that isn't just matter. It isn't just the interplay of energy and, and, and all the different things that are going on. There, because we are, like God, we are spirit. But... God is spirit in the way that God is good, in the way that God is loving, in the way that God is true, in the way that God is personal. And I say that not that we know goodness, because I know when you treat me good, and I know when you treat me not good. That's not the way that God is good. 
God isn't good because we've set up a standard of goodness and then we evaluate, has he done a good job? God is good in that he is the standard of goodness and now the rest of us are evaluated by him. The same thing are true for all of the things that you would put in as God's attributes that are communicable like this. He's true. He's love. He relates to us in a personal way. And these are all experiences we have with other human beings. But we can never, because of our experiences with other human beings, say we've defined the ultimate, you know, kind of scale of goodness. This is really, really bad, and this is really, really good. And I know this because this is the worst I've ever been treated, and this is the best I've ever been treated. Because the question you'd have to ask is, how do you know that you have the best evaluation of things? Take a child. A child's understanding of the goodness and love of his parents should mature and evolve over time, shouldn't it? Because in the very beginning, it's kind of simple. If you make me feel good, you're good. And if you don't make me feel good, if you don't give me the things I find pleasurable, then you're not good. You're not loving. You're not doing what you're supposed to do. As a child grows, a child understands, oh, sometimes my parents treated me in a manner that was hard, but actually for my ultimate good, a good I couldn't define at that point. If that's true of us with our limited understanding of our parents and our parents' limited ability to do good, We can take some analogy like that and we can actually overlay it to God. In fact, that's kind of the way Jesus talked about God, isn't it? If you, though you were evil, give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those? See, this is what we mean when we talk about God in ways that we can kind of understand and imitate. We have these ways of understanding God, but we also have to remember that God is actually presented as scripture as the standard of all of these attributes. It's why if you ever encounter somebody who says, I can't worship a God who, fill in the blanks. The problem that's underlying all of that is that somebody actually doesn't want to worship anybody else but themselves. It's kind of sad. Because when you strip it all away, the the underlying assumption there is, I'm the best judge of what's good. I'm the best judge of what's true. I'm the best judge of what's loving. It would be like a three-year-old saying, I can't honor a father who doesn't give me candy all the time. So, well, you need to grow up a little bit, and you might do a better job of figuring out what's actually honorable in your parents. That same reality is true for all of us as human beings trying to understand what it means to live in a worshipful way before God. We are to worship God who is presented in Scripture not as just better than us, but as the measure of us. That's what it means for God to be like us, but so very not like us. And if those are communicable attributes, then you could probably guess that the others are called incommunicable attributes. That's your next blank. By this, we're talking about the fact that God is omniscient. He understands everything. He is omnipotent. He's omnipresent. He's eternal. He's immutable. He's infinite. And of those, a lot of times the omnis get a lot of attention. He is all-knowing. He is present in all places. He is all-powerful. 
The one that I have recently found more and more compelling is the immutability of God. In this sense, aren't you glad that you aren't immutable? Take your best day. Just your best day. You'll never get any better than that. You will never get any more like God than that. Isn't that depressing? That you've already peaked? That you can never grow? You could never mature? Praise God for your mutability. Because I could also say, let's take your worst day. Man, what if, what if the button had been pushed at that point, And that's who you'd be forever. Now flip that around on its head. God has never once improved, repented, gone on a self-improvement campaign. He's never had to say, wow, I really screwed up there. He's never had to sort of have a conversation with himself, sort of a deep end of the pool kind of moment, and say, you know, we, 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 yesterday wasn't very good. We need to have a meeting and figure out how we can do a better job of managing the world. That's because God is immutable. He never changes. He is infinite. He is eternal. And in all these ways, he is holy. Holy doesn't just mean pure. It doesn't just mean better. It means separate, different, other. But not in a way that you think of middle school where, you know, popularity rules the day and everybody who's other than you is kind of always looked down. When we think of God's holiness, his otherness, there's a sense that we are always looking up to him. We are always looking out beyond something. And in in Paul's words, it feels like when we're trying to comprehend who God is, what he can do, what he has done, it's always like we're looking through a veil. We're getting shadows. We're getting movements. We're getting ideas. But what we long for is to have that kind of peeled back, which is why Brian could read for us, to whom then would you liken God or what likeness would you compare with him? If this is who God is, then why would we want to reduce him down into the picture of something that we can comprehend? The Israelites did it with cows. We just do it in our American idol kind of ways. Think about the recent acquisition that the Browns made at quarterback. Now, I don't know if you know about this guy. And I don't pretend to be an expert on him. But he's a guy who's got 22 women who are accusing him of being inappropriate sexually. And he's probably one of the best five quarterbacks. There will be debates in Cleveland for a long time about which of those two statements matter more. But what's discouraging is that no matter who we have set up as our idols, as our heroes, they always fall. They always have weak spots. Tom Brady, the most exalted quarterback, abandoned his first wife because he found somebody better. Everybody's got something that's making them seem just not quite. 
quite right. That's what happens with all idols, guys. When we try to take all of our desires for this incomprehensible God and we try to have them satisfied in lesser experiences, those are wineskins that just blow apart. Our righteousness, our impressiveness, our glory isn't all that shiny. And it can't hold the weight of any of humanity's expectations. I think I've let every single person in this church down multiple times, and I probably don't even know the number of ways. Why? Because I'm just one of these who really shouldn't ever try to take God's place. Every one of us, when we're imitating God, we only stand in his place and point away to him and say, if there's something you're desiring in this relationship you have with me, let me just let you know I'm glad to stir it up and then point you to him because he's the only one who will satisfy either of us. So to whom would you then liken God or what likeness compare with him? This is from our statement of faith. There is one God, infinite, eternal, almighty, and perfect in holiness, truth, and love. In the unity of the Godhead, there are three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, co-existent, co-equal, co-eternal. The Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father, yet each is truly deity. One God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the foundation of Christian faith and life. And at the end of the day, God's nature as triune is why we have named this church Trinity Church. We don't want to be so very focused on one person of the Godhead that we make the kind of mistakes that are so easy to make. And another link I'm going to send away in the the email comes from um, one we've shown and kind of laughed at before. It's from an author called Lutheran Satire. And it's of St. Patrick trying to explain the Trinity to some of the, the early converts to Christianity that he found. It's an enjoyable way of understanding how partialism and modalism and water and eggs don't really capture what we just read about God in his triune nature. But here's what I find difficult as we think about the Trinity, just one last statement. It's easy for people to say, I don't really think that I can grab this idea of God as triune because I really can't understand it. And I would say, if that's your standard, you should just give up on knowing anything about God. Because any one of these communicable or incommunicable attributes, if you dive deep enough into that well, you will exhaust your intellectual supply of air. You will never understand what the love of God truly is. Which is why Paul said, I pray for you as a church that when you think about the love of God, that you try to comprehend how incomprehensible it is. The Trinity, you don't get it, so you can't understand it. Well, then don't believe that God's loving. Then don't believe that God's good. Then don't believe that God is in charge. Then don't believe that God knows everything. Because frankly, you will never understand any one of these things. And the goal of this lesson is not that we simply understand God, get an A on the test, and are impressing him with over, you know, whatever we've mastered about him. It's that we would be in awe of him and that we would enjoy him. See, at the very end of this slide, we see that God is three persons. Each person is fully God, and there is one God. 
So let's talk about the first person of the Trinity, God as point A, Father. When we think of the fatherhood of God, we think first of God as the initiating agent. While the entire Godhead is revealed as active participants in these areas, when the Father is presented in Scripture, he's always the initiator of these activities. So the creator, the sovereign king, the electing savior, the only judge, the providential Lord, he is the one who initiates all of this Godhead activity so that Jesus is involved in creation, but it seems as though the Father has primacy in the role of creation. In the saving work of God, Jesus clearly has an active role, but the initiating work has come from the Father. It's not just that Jesus is, or the Father is the initiator, it's that he has also a personal role. One of the hallmarks of progressive or liberal Christianity lately has been the dichotomy and a false one between an angry God of an Old Testament and a peaceful Jesus of the New Testament. To read our statement there, far from being an angry God whom Jesus had to placate, God's heart has always been for our relationship to him as sons and daughters. It is the great love of God as the Father. Those passages right there will help you if you're looking for some places to just dive into scripture this week and really enjoy what it means to have a father who initiated all of your redemption and who wants you for himself. There's some great verses right there. Mike reminded us on a little text chain as elders this morning of an old song that he was listening to called How Great the Father's Love. Is that right, Mike? One of the lines is, how can, the first sort of stanza starts is, how can a sinner be forgiven? How can a rebel be made clean? It goes on and asks, how could blinded eyes be made to see? How could, adorf, how could orphans be adopted? And the chorus is, how wonderful the Father's love for us. That he should send his only son to come. And rescue us. See, it is this love of the Father who is not sitting back, disappointed in humanity, who's over in the corner saying, oh, just forget them. And then Jesus had to come and say, oh, let's, we, could, we could work something out. That's not the role of the Father in Scripture. The role of the Father is certainly one as providential Lord and as the only judge, but he is the one who is electing and who is the sovereign and the creator. move to a second picture that we have in scripture of who God is. It's more than a picture. It's a presentation of God as the son. Reading from B, the son of God seen in glimpses in the Old Testament is revealed in Jesus Christ who came to earth to reveal God's true nature. Now, I had referenced that quiz that I'm going to send to you. Let me tell you why the study of who Jesus is as the son is a challenging one. And I'll just give you an example from somebody who I think, you know, we would generally say this guy is a, a hallmark of, of pure orthodox doctrine and the proclamation of God's word. His name is John MacArthur. He's been a pastor in the Los Angeles area for, I don't know, probably half a decade. 
been around for a long time, read a lot of commentaries, and he's a heretic, or at least at one point in time he was. Because at one point in time, John MacArthur said that Jesus, that the Son of God was not always the Son of God. It was a question to try and ask the question of, or sorry, a debate to try to ask the question of when Jesus arrived on the earth, did the sun sort of appear at that moment? Trying to sum up the debate in 30 seconds or less doesn't really do it justice. John MacArthur had some really good, solid biblical reasons for being able to say, yeah, I think when Jesus arrived, he became the son. Not that he, there was, he was eternally the son of God. Over time, some people challenged John and said, uh, Pastor MacArthur, I don't think you're right on this. And to his credit, he came back and said, you know, guys, I taught this, and I was wrong. This had been debated over church history. This had been a settled thing. I was looking at scripture this way, but I was ignoring this and this and this. I appreciate that intellectual honesty. And I think if we're honest, when we try to think of what it means for Jesus Christ to be a human being and yet to be God, every Christmas we kind of do a little bit of hard work intellectually, trying to be able to understand what this means. So let me, let me read what we have. Under God as Son, we think of his person. Jesus is both fully God, always existing, sharing all the characteristics of God, and forever reigning as King, and fully man, born of a virgin named Mary, untainted by sin, living fully under the temptations and weaknesses of humanity, yet suffering death perfectly and triumphing, triumphing over sin eternally. Now, this combination of natures is known as the hypostatic union. So we talk about God having only one nature as deity, but having three persons, but then when we talk about Jesus, the one person of the Trinity, we think of him as having two natures. Not split down the middle so that some things are being done as God and some things being done as man. That he, in both natures, is 100% man and 100% God. And if you want to have some fun over, you know, lunch, try asking some questions about which things Jesus did that were more influenced by him being God and more influenced by him being man. And how could this have happened if he was... A, it's, it's kind of a fun debate, as long as it leads to us enjoying the fact that he did this perfectly. That's what we say in his person. Point two, his roles. Jesus is our savior, our priest, and our king. As our Savior, Jesus' primary purpose in coming was that he might save mankind from the perils of their rebellion. As our priest, Jesus can both sympathize with our weaknesses because of his humanity, while also being able to end sin because of his deity. And as our king, Jesus arrived as the promised Messiah from David's line, demonstrated he was a king who would reign like and be declared he would then reign Again, you know what? I'm just glad that we get a chance to be able to correct that the next time we print these out. Something about that grammar is wrong, but Jesus is very impressive as the king. That's the point I'm trying to get across to you guys. The good thing about those three roles is that when you study the Old Testament, there were a bunch of flawed kings. There were a bunch of flawed priests. 
And there were a bunch of flawed military leaders. But from Genesis 3 and on, every time a significant human stepped onto the stage, there was always going to be a question for every Jew who knew their history. Because God had promised that sometime someone would be related to Eve and that that son of Eve's line would come and defeat the serpent. So when Moses came, was he going to be the one? Not really. When David came, would he be the one? Not really. And when everyone who would come in either a priestly way or a kingly way or even in a military way, whenever they would step onto the scene, would they be the one who would finally answer all the tensions of Genesis 3? And the answer was repeatedly no, 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 until Jesus came. And the one who conquered and the one who represented would also be the one who would rule. And verse 3 summarizes what we talked about last week, that his primary work was that in his life and in his death and in his resurrection, Jesus lived and died and rose, not just as our example, but as our substitute. See, it is true to say that Jesus came to show us how to live. But it's also true that Jesus knew we wouldn't be able to live like him. And so he came to, in living for us, cover all the ways that we would fail. And in living for us, give us the ability to be able to enter into God's presence so that we could read in one of those previous verses, Christ all. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. You see, Jesus didn't come simply to be an example, either of how to obey or how to sacrifice. He didn't just come as an example of how to conquer. But when he lived and when he died and when he rose, he was doing that because we couldn't. But that through faith, we have. Jesus' victory is on our behalf, which is why we say after point three there, Jesus lived and died and rose on our behalf. Now, if you really want to bend your brain, Jonathan Edwards tried to picture the Trinity one. And he said, imagine someone standing in front of a mirror. They see the mirror And they're impressed by what is there in the mirror. And they fall in love with what's there in the mirror. You've heard the story before? We call these people narcissists because of the guy, narcissist. But Jonathan Edwards took that and said, that actually doesn't work because it's done at a human level. But that story might get as close to the way that we could understand God in all of his perfection. Because the son is called the image of the father. It's an accurate description for who God the son is. And Edwards goes on in in much better, more intellectual and more flowery, more beautiful language than I can portray. He says, imagine that a perfect person sees, has such a perfect image of himself, that you could say that that image is also a person. 
And if that person could so relate to the image of himself that there would be a, a holy and a perfected enjoyment that the love that would exist between the two of them was also able to be personified, then you'd be able to say in some sense that you have the Father, you have the Son, and in the embodiment, the personhood of that love, you have the Holy Spirit. The reason I put that out there is a, hey, that's something Jonathan Edwards said, is one, because I can't say it as well as Jonathan Edwards said. Two, because that's not really the way that the Bible portrays it. There have been a lot of ways that smarter people than me have tried to read the pages of Scripture and say, I think we could sync these things together. And that's Edwards' way of trying to say what the Trinity is. That's better than a four-leaf clover. Sorry, a three-leaf clover. Better than a four-leaf clover, too. It's better than an egg. It's better than air. Or, sorry, than water. Right? As you'd think of as, you know, vapor and liquid and solid. But when we think of God as the Spirit, when we think of God as the Son, it's not bad to think of the Son as the image of the Father. And when we think of the Holy Spirit, it's not bad to think of the Holy Spirit in some ways as the personification of perfect love. But the way that we would describe point C is that God as spirit can be discussed this way. Because there has been great confusion regarding the person and work of the Holy Spirit, we want to dedicate more of the time in this lesson to studying and enjoying, enjoying the deity and work of the Spirit of God. So we think point one of his deity, we are thinking about the fact that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are the same in essence, are equal, and are eternal. What we mean by that is that the Holy Spirit is fully God. When we are relating to God the Spirit, we're not getting the ambassador of God we're not just sort of getting an emissary or some sort of exalted angel. We are interacting with God himself. That's why Jesus said, and I will ask the Father, and he will give to you another counselor to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. And then in that says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. We read in the very beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So the first thing for us to understand when we think about the Holy Spirit is that we are talking about God to whom we relate as God, the creating God, the life-giving God, and also not just to God, but to a person. The Spirit is not an it or an impersonal force. So we're thinking of his deity, and point two, we're thinking of his personhood. What that means is that when the Spirit of God is presented, either in the pages of the Old Testament or the New, he is presented as a he, as a personal being to whom we're relating, not as a force of something that's kind of creating. This isn't Star Wars in that sense. We're talking about someone who has a mind and who possesses knowledge. That's why Paul would say, he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit 
intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. Not only is he know things and have a mind, he teaches, speaks, and guides. But the counsel of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. And more than that, as a person, he can be grieved. Not just disobeyed, not just distanced from, but he can be personally affected by our relationship with him. Which is why Paul says in Ephesians, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. See, God is spirit is God. God is spirit is a person. And God is spirit has a role which is to bring God's presence to his people. Ephesians 2, and him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Or it's why at the end of 2 Corinthians, Paul would say the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the spirit be with you all. That's why I said that in some ways you could think of Jesus as the image of the father and as the Holy Spirit is really the experience Experience the, the love of God, the one who is bringing God's presence to be with his people. What we're going to do now is spend a little bit of time just thinking about his works. And I asked you that first question, how are you experiencing your relationship with God? Because all of these that we're going to talk about in point four are in the present tense. They certainly relate to things in the past, but they are present tense realities. So the first thing of his works is that he creates and sustains spiritual and natural life. The same one who was moving over the face of the deep, Job says, has made me. The breath of the Almighty gives me life. I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. And in both of those, the conversation that Jesus is having with Nicodemus in John 3 and the conversation that Job is using, he describes something that really gets to the heart of the way the word spirit is used. In fact, a while back we did a series on spirit, we called it pneuma. You might know that the study of the spirit of God is called pneumatology. The word that probably relates most in construction realms is a pneumatic tool. It doesn't mean an electric-powered tool. It means an air-powered tool because that word pneuma, spirit, has a lot to do with the way we would think of breath, wind, things blowing across. That's why Jesus said to John or to Nicodemus, but when, this, when the wind blows, do you, do you know what has actually happened? Nicodemus says, not, not really. So that's the way it is with the, the wind of God, the breath of God, the, the spirit of God. So when man is created, he's like everything else, made up out of dust, but more than dust. God actually breathes his pneuma, his breath, his spirit into him. And so he is a creating and sustaining. He is a judging and a purifying. 
When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. He goes on and describes that process a little bit more to be able to say to those of us who would want to share the good news and to describe what happened to us in the very beginning when we heard the good news, it wasn't some powerful speaker that affected change inside us. It wasn't somebody saying something to us who brought conviction. It wasn't something that they said that actually brought real life. That was the simultaneous work of the Spirit of God, which should give us great confidence when we're talking to others. You don't have to convict. You don't have to regenerate. You don't have to convince or bring life. Because John says that is what the Spirit will do. And more than just creating and sustaining, more than judging and purifying, he also guides and he assures why in the Psalms we can read, teach me to do your will for you are my God. May your good spirit lead me on level ground. In the same way from the same sermon and Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He says later, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. So there's a work sent by the Son that the Spirit is doing in the world today. Jesus, married to a human body, can't be here. But it's better that he left because the Spirit of God is presently at work, not just having guided, having created, having judged, having purified, but doing that work today. That's why Paul says, when you became a Christian, you didn't receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. But you received a spirit of sonship. And it's by him that we cry out, Dad, Father. How do we have this confidence that we prayed for in the beginning of this message to be able to come to God? It's because the Holy Spirit is constantly doing that work of assuring us you belong to him and you belong here. It's not everybody else around you that belongs here. It's you that belong because God belongs to you and you belong to God. And in doing that, he levels everything out and he unifies us. Paul said in one of the great divisions of his day, you, the Jews and the Gentiles, are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. And ultimately, through all this, we see that he reveals. God has revealed this, what Paul was just talking about in 1 Corinthians, to us by his spirit, because the spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. What this means is this should change the way that we read the Bible. It means that every time we open up the pages of Scripture, we shouldn't just be having an interaction with printed words, just like you're having an interaction with this, kind of as though these are just notes. Every time we open up the pages of Scripture, we have something that is described in Acts as, brothers, the Scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas. Something Big and bold was happening. 
It was, a, it was a substantial move in the kingdom of God among the leaders that Jesus had left behind. And when trying to understand what was going on, he doesn't speak in the present tense. He speaks about God's work in the past tense. So what God had done is he had inspired this passage long ago. And he's now bringing it to bear. We hold an ancient book that's still alive because of what God did through his spirit and because of what he does through his spirit. And in doing that, he reveals Christ, the passage that we looked at there before, and he reveals the active presence of God. He says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit used to live in you? No. He says it through the present tense. And he says it to Corinth. Corinth was suing each other. Corinth was celebrating adultery and incest. Corinth was trying to figure out who one-upped each other because they had a ranking of all spiritual gifts and people like some sort of tournament were trying to figure out how to get the best ones so they could have the best position. What a spirit-filled church! But that's what Paul says they actually are. You, the church in Corinth, still have God's spirit alive, living, because he lives in you. And because of all that, he's empowering the church today. He is empowering us through his filling work, through his baptism work, so that we can read, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, but instead be filled with the spirit. Now, This does make some statements about drinking, so it's something to be aware of. But it's not primarily about drinking. The reason Paul says that getting drunk isn't a great idea is because there's a better idea. Why do people drink? A lot of people drink because they're sad. A lot of people drink because they're bored. A lot of people drink because they think that's the thing that's going to accompany them and empower them to another sort of experience. I want to do that, but man, I'm probably going to need a couple drinks first. Paul says, why take that substitute? Why minimize your life on what a grape can do whenever it spoils? Why just reduce your experiences down to that when you could actually instead by being empowered and emboldened and filled and consumed with the love of God poured into your hearts through the work of the Holy Spirit. The reason some of us don't is because we're just way too distracted. Wine was pretty much the, the common way of getting distracted in the day. We have multiplied the amount of wine in our society. We've come up with something way better than grapes. We've got digital grapes. We've got pharmaceutical grapes. We've got entertaining grapes. We've got so many ways of being filled and emboldened and comforted and distracted so that we can look to God and say, thanks, your church doesn't need you. When we're sad, we go here. When we need strength, we go there. When life is confusing, we go there. So God, I get it. You were necessary in the past when all they had was grapes, but we don't need you anymore. 
What a lifeless church that produces. What a weak and apathetic church that produces. When the church comes, sings words it doesn't mean because it walks out the door and says, I've got all my gods in my pocket or in my cupboard. I don't need you, God. So don't do that. But instead, let your life be saturated and empowered and filled and motivated and consumed with the Holy Spirit. When I get drunk on the Bible, when I get drunk on the love of God, why not be so overwhelmed and consumed with God's love that, that going somewhere else just isn't going to satisfy because you know that leaves you empty at the end of it. But the well of the love of God and the experience of understanding the love of God is a work of the Spirit that would absolutely overwhelm us the way that wine can overwhelm. We could actually be empowered as God's church, and not just empowered for our own experience, but empowered for preaching and evangelism so that Jesus could say, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. Guys, I don't even know how we're doing in our neighborhood. I praise God for the ways that we've been able to see God at work in the world. But I come away from a a meeting with pastors in Nepal And I'm not thinking, man, it's a good thing they were around us because we sure got it going on. I come away and I think, Lord, make us more like these guys. Make us willing to sacrifice like them. Make us willing to preach like them. Make us willing to, let us find a field that is white for harvest like what they have found. And what that happens is it brings this expansion because of the empowering work of the Holy Spirit. So that what we see is, When Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came upon everyone who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. Can you imagine what this could mean in the life of our church? It might mean that the growth of our church would look like people you would never want to welcome into this church. Because the church belongs to us, to people like us, with our experiences. The church belongs to people who like the songs that we like or think the way we think. What if even the Gentiles was God's future plan as the scroll for Trinity Church got opened up? What if the folks that God would bring into this church would sit in your seat What if they'd sort of get in your way? What if they'd want to see us doing things that we just wouldn't necessarily think that we would want to do? Just so you know, I'm not setting you up for something. I'm just saying it seems like that is when we invite the Holy Spirit to work. What he's pretty good at is surprising the people who wanted something but had no idea what they really wanted in the first place. What if what God's going to mature us into isn't simply a church that feels better for us, but that looks more like the ministry of Jesus? 
Because his ongoing works are to create and to sustain, to judge and to purify, to guide, to assure, to unify, to reveal, to empower. And he does this ultimately by raising up leaders and giving gifts so that we want to kill sin and see fruit grow in this church. By raising up leaders and by giving gifts that produce fruit in us, not just that make us more popular. What if the primary work God wants to do in us to make us more that way would simply be that we would be a church that would pray? A church that would worship. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. Those of you who know Revelation 5 know that I ended it too quickly, didn't I? Revelation chapter 5, verse 6, ends slightly different. Verse 5 says, One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And if you're a Jew reading that and you stop at verse 6 and you don't move on beyond that, you were thinking, yes, John is on exile and the Romans are the ones who were in charge. We need the Lion of Judah to come. We need the Root of David. We need a king to come back and do his work. I want to see a lion once again on the throne. Amen, right? And then verse six. And I turned and I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And they sang a new song, saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? For you're the lion! No! For you were slain. And it's by your blood that you rescued and ransomed. Church, I submit to you, a bit of an analogy that without the spirit of God we'll live our lives in verse 5 God is going to bring power according to the standards and the definitions of our day and that's why I let you know you'll get so bored so bored with your verse 5 definition of what God's doing the work of the Spirit of God since he has come to the earth in power, sent by Jesus, was to remind us that the lion came. But he came in the most beautiful way that once we saw it should have made sense. Isaac was going to die, but there was a ram that died in his place. Adam and Eve were covered in fig leaves. 
but there was a blood, an animal whose blood was shed so that they could be clothed. Over and over, every single way, even the best of the priests would have to kill an animal in order to find some forgiveness for their own sins. And so when the conquering lion came, the Spirit of God reminds us he came as the perfect expression of the love and the power and the plan of God because he came to die. And if we define our church and our future and our plans off of verse 5, then we're going to succeed and thrive and grow at every step. But if we're empowered by the Spirit, then we'll be reminded the love of God was shown to us through a path of death and sacrifice and suffering. And I think we'll be more empowered to do the same. To say, God, whatever you call us to, I see what you empowered through Jesus, who even in the garden was struggling and yet drunk the cup. So Lord, if you would have us to suffer and to sacrifice and to serve, not to be important or influential, but simply to do your will, oh, then Lord, do your verse six work in us too, because that's the way you saved us. And we're going to sing and we're going to ask the Lord to empower our worship through that process. But let's pray first and ask the Lord to empower us when we leave by the same spirit. Father, I pray, you know my dreams for this church and you know how many times you have tweaked and disappointed and thwarted them only to do something better. Father, we would be just like Peter who when you proclaim a way that leads to a cross, we would get in your way and say, that's not the way to go. But through your spirit, you remind us that's the way you saved us and that's the way you're still saving the world. So Father, next week as we think about what you're doing through our church and how you're actively working so that we can, we can encourage each other and we can serve the world, Father, I pray that you'd be reminding us first by the work of your spirit in us, that you have saved us through the blood of Jesus. And that empowered by your mercy and in awe of your plan, we can do whatever you ask because the same spirit's at work in us who brought Jesus back from the dead. Father, I pray, receive our worship now. Exalt Jesus now through our singing. And then propel us into those worlds so that we can serve like him. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen. Wonderful.